The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. I remember a wedding I once performed, and before, when we were planning it, the mother, and I don't normally allow mothers or fathers into the planning, but this one insisted. She told her son she wanted the reading to be from the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. She wanted it to be in the service, a reading, a passage, one of them, in which the passion and sensuality of lovers is described as they do speaking to each other in that book and of each other. Some scholars and lovers of this book see it as a metaphor, the lovers speaking to each other, a metaphor for the relationship between God and God's people, always passionate and adoring and alive. But this mother meant it in the more literal way for her son and his soon-to-be spouse. How beautiful you are, my love, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like flocks of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. There are better and worse passages, or ones that translate better or worse through time. Your lips distill nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your channel is an orchard of pomegranates with all the choicest fruits. That one I'm not unpacking in worship. <laughs> but we are sex positive as Unitarian Universalists, and if you really like it, I imagine book sales of the Bible will go up in the neighborhood and you can blame the Unitarians, which might be a first in recent history. The passages are filled with the adoration of lovers. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Poet Maxine Kuhnman wrote a poem called After Love that again is both a literal poem about lovers but also has a larger metaphorical layer for me. She writes, afterwards, the compromise. Bodies resume their boundaries. These legs, for instance, mine. Your arms take you back in. Spoons of our fingers, lips admit their ownership. The bedding yawns. A door blows aimlessly ajar. And overhead, a plane, sing-song coming down. Nothing has changed, except there was a moment when the wolf, the mongering wolf who stands outside the self, lay lightly down and slept. The poem, of course, is a description of life, the moment after making love, or at least after an interlude of deep physical intimacy and connection. The poet writes of that moment when bodies intertwined are being separated out again, 
and coming back to their owners. She speaks of that time after the world got shut out briefly in the passion of it all when the world breaks back in again, the airplane overhead, the thwack of the door in the breeze. And it's that time when the self that had been lost in this gorgeous surrender to a larger we has to put its wolf of separation back to guard the door. There is so much that is powerful and important about love and falling in love. That sense of intoxication with the gorgeousness of another. That way we see each other in all the extraordinariness of our facets. Perhaps we see them like God, if you believe in a God, or imagine how one would if we constructed a God, work in the world, if she did exist, seeing past all of our flaws to the miracle that we are all the time. Lovers see each other that way. Love, especially when it is falling and fierce, sees the other that way. Friends who find each other with that sense that they are like soulmates have that vision for each other. We have our new UU class today, and one of the reasons that I always love going to that class is that often people who come new to Unitarian Universalism see us with those eyes. And it's gorgeous and important to see ourselves through those eyes periodically from time to time to remind us of something we're at risk of forgetting. It's also gorgeous and important. And I would say if you can stand the language, and I know we have lots of different comfort levels with language and religion and our spiritual lives, but I would see it as sacred and holy to see the world through the lover's eyes periodically. To be reminded also of that powerful loss of the self. Instead, reminded of that other thing, that merging that embodied experience we have in certain moments of our connection and participation in a larger we, to have the wolf of self-protection fall asleep in a place of trust and surrender. It's a good reminder those moments, if we can stay in them and hang on to them that we come from larger love, that I think we return to larger love. That though we're all walking for a while in a form of life that has an illusion of separateness, as so many wise people of all places and times have said through the ages since the beginning of the human journey, that the deeper truth is that we are part of an interconnected web of existence, a network of mutuality, as King said. The kingdom of God for me, whether it is reality or metaphor, 
It is the ontological, teleological truth of where we would be as a world if we knew and lived the truth of those moments of knowing, of unity and interconnection. Just imagine how much would go away, how much would be alleviated if we lived that truth, how much of what we rang our gong for this morning so we had a way to hold it together would vanish or be caught with deep care and, and abundant and vast resources, human, financial, how much the world would be burnished into a place that we could live more abundantly if we together didn't forget this truth that we know in these moments. But we do return, each of us, from all those moments of knowing and infatuation and merging into the reclaiming of our own limbs and the wolf waking up to a journey that's our own. And the poet's implied question for me is what happens after love, after we return our arms and legs to their rightful places in the lives that we lead outside these peak moments of connection. Anne Morrow Lindbergh, during a vacation at the ocean over 70 years ago, wrote what she found and saw in the shells and the rhythms of the place. In the book, Gifts from the Sea, she wrote how one of the things she realizes there is how love, like the ocean, has its tides. When you love someone, she writes, you do not love them all the time in exactly the same way from moment to moment. It is impossible, it's even a lie to pretend to. And yet this is exactly what most of us demand. We have so little faith in the ebb and flow of life, of love, of relationships. We leap at the flow of the tide, yet we resist in terror its ebb. We are afraid it will never return. We insist on permanency, on duration, on continuity, when the only continuity in life, as in love, is in growth, in fluidity, in freedom, in the sense that the dancers are free, barely touching as they pass, but partners in the same pattern. Lindbergh is, of course, right. In all love relationships, there is an ebb and a flow. And the moment after love is often about this distance, this pattern of space and intermittency with return to intimacy and connection and back like these tides of the ocean. To resist that pattern is to resist the natural dynamics of the human heart and life's demands. And it's also true in the theme of today's sermon that as part of tending to love and its aliveness, we're aware of and attend to that rhythm. 
Because as you all know, sometimes if we get too busy or stop seeing one another with the lover's eyes, then we're at risk of the sea receding too long and too far. And it isn't good for our hearts or our relationships when that happens, to have too much space in our togetherness, as Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran described it. Years ago, I knew a couple who told me they had felt like they were in just one of those situations. They weren't dangerously separated, but they were having a harder time finding their way back to each other. And by the way, it's great when you can see somebody, talk to someone, anyone, a friend, a therapist, when you find yourself in one of those places. One of the hardest and stats that I heard years ago was the percentage of couples who come to a therapist as a last ditch effort because often it is too late then to find their way back to each other. So this couple was doing an appropriately timed intervention. The therapist met with them once and the couple shared their struggles and the therapist listened and asked a few questions and listened some more. And at the end of the session, her advice to them was date night. You two need a regular date night. The couple was annoyed at this pretty ordinary advice for their unique and extraordinary relationship. And I'm not clear if date night happened, but a couple of weeks later, they went back for their second session. And at that session, they talked about the struggles they'd had in the last couple of weeks, and the therapist listened and asked a few questions, and they spoke some more, and she listened some more, and at the end of the session, she repeated the same original advice. This time, they left and headed out to a dinner they had pre-planned afterwards. And at dinner, they talked over, I'm imagining, a lovely bottle of wine and some nice food and in a cheerful place about how annoying the therapist was and how silly her advice was. And at the end of the dinner, they decided to fire the therapist, but keep date night. <laughs> Maybe a common enemy is what we need in love. And recently, I was on a call with leaders from our UU Ministers Association who are exploring how we can put in place, among us as ministers, but I think, um, you know, ultimately in the larger movement, um, restorative justice practices. So when there are arguments or a break in covenant between us as ministers, we don't focus on punishment, but we focus on healing and reconnection. And one of the colleagues said in her research on restorative justice practices and restorative justice circles, what she had learned was that one of the teachers said that if you're going to do this, you should spend 80% of your time gathering in circles, being in conversation without crisis, and then only 20% of your time actually solving crises when they arise. I was thinking how odd at first that sounded, and then how intuitive 
and immediately obvious it was actually also that this was absolutely right for all relationships. That to weather hard moments, there has to be this wellspring of time together, good time together between us, whoever we are. And it doesn't have to be passionate and it doesn't have to be transcendent, it just has to be good time. The kind of time that rebuilds and maintains trust and affection and it is one of the legacies of pandemic that many of us rode out in our relationships, the pandemic time, on the full well of um, goodwill that we had in our relationships that allowed us to keep connected and stay connected um, even when we were apart in such significant ways. But that at this point, those wellsprings are low those wellsprings that were built up over years are low, and so we have to spend time filling them up again in the same ways that we built them up in the first time, which is to say that marriages, friendships, all of our connections, life in community, all requires now attention to time together, good time. And I also think, and I bet many of you know what I'm talking about, that the reason I'm saying good time is it's not just time together, not just minutes or hours, but how we are together. Did you know that when a phone buzzes, even if a person doesn't pick it up and respond, both people rate that conversation later as less satisfying? Did you know that when a phone is on a table during a conversation, people rate that conversation as less satisfying? Did you know when a phone buzzes in your pocket, this one of my daughter's teachers told them because they made, she made everybody put their phones at the front of the um, room where they couldn't see them. When, they feel, when you feel a phone buzzing in your pocket, even if you don't respond to it, it takes up mental energy and reduces your ability to be present and focused and concentrate with the people in front of you? Phones are this literal, invisible reminder that our conversations are interruptible, right? That they, they decrease intimacy and connection in all these ways, strange and interesting, and now that we know, we all know what to do to make our time together better, that this Beauty of unencumbered time together requires all sorts of intentional choices. For me, some of those choices mean choosing time together away from ordinary furniture that needs dusting and tax papers in the corner, things that remind us, like a phone, of what is undone. It may be time away, just even a town away, somewhere that speaks of adventure or that feeds the spirit and gives us something to connect around like a free talk or a consort or an outing in nature which is so beautiful and restorative and we have such an infinite number of gorgeous places at our disposal in this part of the world or wherever folks find themselves. In a world that loves the illusion of quick fixes and magic elixirs that you can buy to solve your problem. 
Keeping love and connection alive involves the therapist's obvious advice of time. Time that's carved out for joy and attention, that speaks of the importance of the relationship in a way that is increasingly countercultural, refusing to be distracted. It's almost an act of revolution lately against a world that is built around a model of economics that asks us to be maximally productive in some measurable, efficient way, right? Measured by GDP. So instead, we all need to start to channel increasingly our Bhutanese spirit, right? And figure out what it means to measure life and productivity by gross national happiness, which is to say, by centering love and connection as part of this revolutionary inquiry, since that actually is what fundamentally keeps us happy in a world that has an epidemic of loneliness because we haven't been doing that as much as we should. Lorraine Hansberry, the playwright and author, the first African-American playwright to have a play produced on Broadway, I read recently, she once said, eventually it comes to you, the thing that makes you exceptional is also what makes you lonely. I think that's, Daniel, a little bit what you were talking about and touching on also in your reflection. This deep, gorgeous human need that we have to be seen and cherished for what makes us unique and different and this deep human need to be connected and loved in all of our shared humanity. That experience, that feeling is often what's so central and why it's so intoxicating to fall in love or meet a soulmate or maybe find a church. It's gorgeous and it's powerful and it's a gift that we can give each other to connect with this intent in mind to pay attention, to protect time and attention. I think when we're doing the work here of attending to the harms that we have been, it's really centered in that work too, right? It's about caring so much. You listen deeply and you begin to stand in another's shoes and listen deeply to their life and understand the layers of the world that, that is theirs that might not be yours and find a way back and more deeply connected to each other. It's such a stunning act of love. Keeping love alive, folks, it's beautiful business. It requires time and attention and intention and vulnerability and generosity to fill all those wellsprings of trust and affection so we can weather, enjoy the good times and get through the harder times better. Maya Angelou and her wonderful poem that I reread recently called I've Learned, which I encourage you to go look at again if you, and read for the first time if you haven't, ends with that famous quote that most of us know, even if we don't know the poem, where she says, people will forget what you've said and people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you make them feel. So may we make one another feel cherished, seen with the lover's eyes and heart, 
And all that that means for each of us, given our own unique person and identity and journey, and may we each also feel seen and loved and held and known. My friends, my beloveds, may we keep love alive among us. Know that as this revolutionary act and choice it is every time we do it, and may we be blessed to see the changes in our own lives and in the world we leave behind in the wake of such a revolution. Happy Valentine's Day. I love you all. Amen. In college, there was a relationship that I stayed in for too long. For anonymity, let's call the other half of this relationship GF for girlfriend. <laughs> for a variety of reasons, I became ambivalent about the relationship just a few months in and continued that way for almost a year. Even after the relationship started developing some pretty serious negative qualities, it took me a couple of months to end it. Why? The main answer is a dearth of self-love and lack of belief that I was lovable. I was lonely in high school, with respect both to friends, but especially to romance. College was better. I made good friends and dated a little, but I still didn't fundamentally believe in my heart that finding another good person who wanted to date me was a sure thing, ever. Furthermore, my relationship with GF coincided with new, deep discomfort and angst with my masculinity. As I started to really see the ways that my gender defined what people expected of me and how they viewed my actions. After a childhood enjoying the privilege of not really thinking about gender, I woke up to how constrained the be a man box is and the ways that those expectations did not resonate for me. I was toying with the idea of a non-binary identity at a time when that was far less normal than it is today. Many of you may think that I'm young, but in the decades since I was in college, non-binary visibility and awareness has come a long way, and the number of college students openly identifying non as non-binary has increased significantly. GF was extremely supportive and understanding through my explorations. So in a critical way, this relationship was giving me what I needed. James Baldwin wrote, quote, love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within, end quote. And because GF was doing that, seeing me for my whole self, and supporting me in exploring my identity. It felt like the relationship had what it needed. 
So it was hard for me to say goodbye to that, even as increasingly undeniable issues arose. Luckily, my fears that it would be impossible to find love were unfounded. While I was single for several years after GF, I then started dating my now wife, who is not only a wonderful partner, but is also just as affirming of my complicated feelings about masculinity and supportive of my gender, however it evolves. Thank you. <laughs>